Welcome to the Business Sphere. On this podcast, we want to share real stories and real struggles from entrepreneurs who have been where you are. John Fong interviews business professionals and entrepreneurs in many fields to uncover their successes and challenges. We take a deep dive into their journey and provide you with tips and advice to help your business today. Thank you for listening to The Business Sphere. Don't forget to share this episode and subscribe. Joining me today is speaker, teacher, and author, Peter Docker. He's the author of Leading from the Jump Seat and co-author of Find Your Why. Thank you for joining me today, Peter. John, it's an absolute delight to join you on your show. Thank you for having me. I know you're joining me all the way from the UK. Um, I actually visited, I went to school there uh, in university for one year. My brother lived there for over 10 years, so I was a frequent traveler to London. So I am very exposed to the culture, the social systems, and some of the people there. And I have some really good, solid friends still living there from high school, uh, university days. So um, I'm glad that, you know, you're from that part. And I have, I'm very curious as to how did you become who you are today? So maybe share with the listeners um, a little bit about your backstory and how you became now an author, speaker, and teacher. Well, uh, thank you for that, John. Sounds, by the way, like you're, you're almost a local uh, here, the, the time you spent in, in the UK. So it's great to connect on that basis too. So first of all, I'm old. I'm 59 years old. Goodness. So, you know, I, I've, I've had a life which um, I feel extraordinarily privileged to have had because of the experiences that I've had. And really that, that started, uh, I, I joined the Royal Air Force um, when I was around about 20 years old uh, as a pilot. And I flew large aircraft, passenger aircraft, and then um, air refueling aircraft, which uh, are dedicated giving gas, gas away to, to fighter jets. And my, that was a journey. You know, I, at the age of 25, I was flying our prime minister. I was one of the pilots selected to do that, which looking back just, just kind of blows me away. I mean, how the heck I got into that place? I don't know. But anyway, I, I was promoted in my 25 years of um, my service in the Royal Air Force. I became a, a senior officer. I led people during combat during the 2003 Iraq war, which was a big leadership challenge for me. Uh, I was a negotiator for the British government um, as part of NATO when the Berlin Wall came down, negotiating with the Russians, which is kind of topical at the moment, I guess. And uh, well, later on in my career, I taught at the UK Defence College on leadership. So I was a teacher there. I um, led a $20 billion program for the Ministry of Defense, which involved um, negotiating with the State Department in the US. So many, many different things during my time in the Royal Air Force. But after 25 years, I thought there's more I can do. So I left and I joined a consultancy, nothing to do with flying and nothing to do with uh, uh, the military, but everything to do with people. And we worked in high-risk industries, in oil and gas, construction, mining, places where typically people sadly got killed or injured in, in their line of work. And what we did was help create cultures and uh, a way of leading, which ensured everyone went home safe at the end of each day. And that was a wonderful experience. Uh, I spent about three years, I worked in the Middle East, in Kazakhstan, in Africa. So that was fascinating. But then... I thought there's more I could do. And it was around about that time that uh, the fellow Simon Sinek 
became famous through his TED talk, Start With Why. And uh, I reached out to him and long story short, we connected and um, he invited me to help take his message around the world. So that's what I did for about uh, seven or eight years. In the process, I, together with my colleague, David Mead, we wrote with Simon the book, Find Your Why, which um, has done really rather well, sold about half a million copies. But after about seven or eight years, I thought there's more I could do. So uh, I stepped away from Simon and I wanted to bring together everything I've learned. You know, I've visited 93 countries I've worked with industries and leadership teams from pretty much every sector and industry you can imagine. And I wanted to bring together all of that into my new book, which is called Leading from the Jump Seat, How to Create Extraordinary Opportunities by Handing Over Control. And it's very much a how-to book, but it's bringing together all those things that I've learned through my own leadership journey, but also through uh, working with other great leaders around the world. I have so many questions for you because that <laughs> sounds like there's 20 people in one lifetime in Peter Docker that yeah. you just, that I would love to explore. Um, but it sounds like you're having so much fun because you're, you're constantly changing and figuring out what's the next move, right? Because it seems yeah. like you hit a plateau or you kind of feel like there's a moment where where else or what more can I do here? And then you move on to something more grand and trying to yeah. make lar a larger impact, right? I, I, I guess, I mean, it, from my end of the telescope, it, it doesn't actually feel like that. You know, I, I'm like you, John, I'm naturally curious and uh, I love engaging with people. And all those countries, for example, I visited 93. So I've got a few more to go, but 93 is quite a high number. Uh, I've met so many people from different cultures, backgrounds, religions, languages, and it's a joy to connect with them on a human level. And why I mention that is because, you know, today in the world, there seems to be lots of things that divide us. But through my experience over the years of meeting so many different people, um, what I see is that what brings us together is so much greater than what keeps us apart. And that for me is a great message of hope for the future. And uh, it, it has me still find the energy to, to, to travel and meet people in different walks of life and different perspectives on the world, because that's when we learn. And uh, that for me is a great joy. So I, before we get into aspects of your journey, I wanted to ask you even prior to becoming Air Force uh, pilot and like, what was your upbringing like? Um, and the, the question I always want to figure out is, were there people within your social group upbringing, parents or relatives or family that guided you to become that pilot? Was there aspirations early days of watching, reading books or, you know, absorbing content to a, a point where that's what I want to do when I grow up? Well, my, my early childhood was, um, well, I had lots of change too. You know, I, I had two stepfathers, uh, not at the same time, but, uh, <laughs> you know, one after the other. And they were very different. Uh, a constant force in my, my life was my, my mother, 
who was always focused on taking care of myself, my two older brothers, and giving us whatever opportunities um, she, she could provide. Um, we didn't have much money uh, at all, um, uh, and that was okay. I didn't feel the, uh, the, the downside of that. And I, I guess I was quite an introverted child. You know, I, I didn't have a mass of friends, really. I had one or two close friends, and in fact, one of whom, Simon Marshall, I'm still in daily contact with, and we work together. So uh, he, he's been a, a bit of a constant theme in my life, too. But to answer your question, there are other people who really influenced me. And two in particular, by the name of Muriel and Frank, uh, they were a married couple, uh, about the same age as my, my parents, perhaps a little bit younger. Um, but they were both severely disabled. Um, Muriel had been bedridden since the age of 16 when she caught polio. And her husband, Frank, uh, his service during the Second World War uh, fighting in the, uh, I think it was the, the, the swamps in Burma, the jungle in Burma, had given him really chronic arthritis and he, he found it very difficult to walk. But these two people were so inspiring for me. You know, there was Muriel, for example, in constant pain, but to be in her presence just lit up your day. You know, just who she was being uh, as a person. Uh, she never had any complaints. Um, and she was always generous of heart and always thinking about the others in her presence. Likewise, Frank, yeah, he had difficulty getting around, but that in no way detracted from the difference he made uh, at work and in other people's lives. And that, that, was, that was always, well, they were both a, a great influence on me. And I, I think my mother, the way we, we got to know them, my mother um, was what was called back then a home help or domiciliary care. And so that's how we, we got to know these people. And so my mother has always been in service. Um, I, <laughs> when I was young, I joined practically every youth organization you could name. I was a member of the Scouts, uh, the Scouting Movement, the Sea Scouts, the Air Training Corps, which has got a connection to the Royal Air Force, um, the St. John Ambulance Brigade. I did piano lessons. You know, you could tell which day of the week it was by the uniform I was wearing, right? you know, because it was a different uniform every day. And at weekends, I was cleaning them all and, and pressing, you know. Um, so I was always part of organizations that somehow served. So when I went to university, I went to university to study subjects that I thought would give me the best chance of getting a great job at the end that would allow me to look after my parents, who had both lost their jobs and were pretty hard up. So I, I didn't want to be... Um, I didn't want to be a burden on them. You know, I wanted to be in a position to help them. And that became one of the defining, deeply important things for me. Um, but then halfway through my university degree, something else happened. It was 1982. Yes, I'm that old. 1982 and the Falkland Islands in the South Atlantic, which is a British territory, they were invaded by neighboring Argentina. And that really captured my attention, not from the point of view of politics. I didn't understand the politics there, but it just so incensed me that someone was imposing their will on others. And that was such a driving force for me that I actually chose to leave university mid-degree and join the Royal Air Force to become a pilot because 
I felt by joining that organization, I would be part of a team that could help people who could not help themselves in future such situations. So that was then the start of my, my flying career. Wow. I mean, it sounds so extraordinary that there were people that, you know, were just so grounded, right? Um, and when you look back, it's more like those people didn't have, they didn't complain. They lived, they survived, and you have this ability to, you know, just be grounded, be, be fully present, right? And acknowledge that, you know, there's people worse off than you. There's people that sh- are suffering, are, and th- these are some of these traits that I've been trying to harvest to my child right now. Um, just letting him know how fortunate and lucky and grateful he should be because there's people around the world where, because we're fortunate to be in the Western world and culture where we have water, food, needs, necessities, choice, abundance of resources, accesses, they are just surviving with bare minimums. And, you know, this is a small percentage of the world population that we're living in, maybe less than 5% maybe 2%, right? Um, where 90 plus percent of the world don't have clean water, or sanitary needs and shelter. So all these things at a young age, you were able to see it. And then being that service um, focus, trying to figure out how you can serve others, which is more the impact part where, you know, I, I feel learning this in your 20s, I didn't start learning this until I was mid 30s, right? Um, but trying to figure that out and that's why i feel like the people close to you early days made a, such an impact on how you became who you are today i, I absolutely i i think though I, I wasn't fully aware of it at the time yeah um and uh, it's important to make that point i think because i wouldn't want to occur as someone who, who got this all sewn up right from an early age because i haven't you know like everybody else i'm just trying to figure it out it's just that I chose to spend a little bit more time reflecting yes. and thinking about these things and putting my, my thoughts and feelings into words so as you can then, I could then act on them, you know, and that, I think that is the, the important thing. And I, I just pick up on your point about, yes, we are very fortunate um, where we, we each live. Of course we are. Um, and something I've learned as well is that, our, our happiness is not connected to material things or, or money, uh, not at all. Uh, it, it's a, a choice we make, and it is a, a choice that is directly connected, I think, from a clear understanding of what's deeply important to us yes. as an individual, as a human being. Um, what are those non-negotiables in our life? Having a clear understanding of that, and also using those things to be in service of others. Um, and that, that is really fundamentally, in fact, that, that's where I started my book, you know, asking the question, what is deeply important to you as a human being? I'm not talking about the latest iPhone or paycheck. No, what is deeply important to you? And I take people through that inquiry because when we can understand what is deeply important to us, it acts as a reservoir for energy to take us forward when we're facing uncertainty or the unknown. It helps us to take that step forward. 
So there's a lot of things I want to ask you regarding those 25 years in Air Force. So let's set now oh. talk about that because you were able to travel, you know, be a part of certain conflicts and uh, serve so many great nations, I'm sure, and people. Um, throughout those years, you were able to see a lot of human suffering and people that were in need or people that um, were living better lives than you were at that time because you were exposed to prime ministers and some, you know, some royalties or whatever, maybe. Um, what did you like? Obviously, there's so many people that you were exposed to, but were there specific people that uh, really triggered you to want to continue moving forward? Were there times of reflection where you're like, why am I doing this? Is this right for me? And were there people that push you to continue to pursue your bigger goal, whatever that was um, at that time? Yeah. So the, the, there's quite a few points you raised there, there John. So I, I'll, I'll try and uh, uh, touch on all of them. There, there have always been people in my life um, who've, been the cheerleaders and encouraged me, you know, whether it's my mother, whether it's my wife now 34 years, Claire, um, or, or my, my friends that are closest to me, you know, and I, I think we all need the, the cheerleader, the, the person who is the one who makes us feel they've got our back. Uh, and that, incidentally, is a key aspect of leadership as well. When we're leading teams, you know, we, we have the opportunity to have people feel that we have their backs. And when people feel that we've got their back, then they're likely to step beyond where they might otherwise step and to, to take those risks to step into the unknown. So that is really important. In terms of people though that I, I've met uh, over the years in my military service, what immediately comes to mind is a story which I write about in the book. And this goes back some years now. I was flying um, a supply mission flight. I flew big aircraft, large, unarmed, undefended aircraft. And I was flying down to um, Freetown, Sierra Leone, on the west coast of Africa. And it was a time when the civil war that had been raging, it was such a brutal civil war, um, a fragile peace had been established. And the British forces had gone into establish that that peace and what i was doing was taking in the the next batch of um, british military people who would help to train uh, the the nationals on the ground to help maintain that stability and i remember as i flew down to the airfield it was the first i was the first of our aircraft to, to fly in and as i circled overhead i could see all the mortar craters on the ground around the runway and we touched down and we taxied in and the, there was rubbish everywhere the craters everywhere but i shut down the aircraft the uh, the troops got off and whilst the airplane was being refueled i thought well i'm going to go up to the air traffic control tower because i'd like to talk to the controllers i was speaking to on the radio as i flew in and so i walked up to the control tower and it was the the, the building itself was puckered with bullet holes most of the windows had been taken out and I, I pushed through the, the doors which were barely hanging onto their hinges and walked up the, the staircase up to the top to the control tower. 
As I walked in, there were two guys probably in their 30s who took off their headsets. There were no other aircraft around, so they, they took off their, their radio headsets to, to turn to me and greet me. But then out the corner of my eye, I noticed this elderly woman. And she was sitting in the corner doing her knitting. She was probably the, the mother of one of the controllers. And when I walked in, she jumped up and she ran over to me. And she just hugged me. And she said, thank you, thank you, thank you. And at the time, I mean, I was pretty taken aback. I didn't immediately realize what this was about. But of course, she wasn't thanking me as an individual. It was the uniform I was wearing. And it was the, the peace that we'd been able to help bring to her country. And although she was old and pretty frail, you know, what, what struck me at the time is the hope that she represented. You know, she'd seen atrocities over the years of the, the war where whole families were killed. But she had maintained that hope. And hope is so much more powerful than optimism because optimism says, oh, it'll all be over by the new year, whatever it is, or it'll change by the spring. And those times come and go, and often we're disappointed. But hope is an unshakable belief that there will be an after. And I've always remembered that because I think it links directly to leadership, you know, particularly in times of uncertainty and change. And yeah, well, the world has changed considerably over the last couple of years and continues to do so. Um, when we're leading others, we need to be that guardian of hope. Because when we maintain that hope, it creates a crucible of possibility where others can help use that hope to figure out what we need to do. What a, what a great story. I mean, I look at what brands represent, what countries represent, what service people represent. Mm. I mean, you being a part of servicing, you know, that great nation that you represented, um, it's I mean, when people are at their last straw, I mean, you, you look at turmoil, civil wars, or what's going on in the world today, um, unrest, that's all they have, hope. They're, they're looking for ways to, you know, get out of the main situation to have a better life for not just themselves, but the next generation, their, their families, their peers. Yeah. Um, and just to give you a perspective, my parents left the Vietnam War to come to Canada. So I completely understand their sacrifice. I understand what had to go through. And I was able to go back to Vietnam a couple years ago with my mom to see how it was because we went to some of these war museums and she didn't even want to go, go to them. But I wanted to. Um, and she, you know, for her, I get it because she probably lost yeah. a lot of friends and people during that time. So, you know, for me, when it's war, it's the, the worst thing anyone can go through. And now I can really, you know, sit back and you saw it firsthand, right? Because you were actually, you know, flying and seeing real people and you seeing the forces in ground. I can only imagine just from the visuals going on right now through media. Um, but that exposure really impacts the way you live, how you look at life differently. 
Um, and I was exposed to it in a different way through my parents, right? And family. So um, it hits people at different ways, but that, that turmoil, that, that pain that everyone goes through, um, I would never want anyone to go through it because it's probably the most painful thing that will probably haunt you for the rest of your life. It, it will never go away. I'd agree. You know, uh, and just a couple of things, what your, your comments prompted my mind, John. One, first of all, um, <laughs> all my former military colleagues, none of us ever wanted to go into um, war or combat. Um, because when you end up doing that, then in some way it's failed. You know, we're, military combat is the, the, the last, well, the last option, really. Um, but, but secondly, you know, everything we're talking about here applies to business, too. And I think that's an important point to make. In, in my book, I, I talk about, well, storage, dramatic things, such as when I was faced with crash landing in an airplane with 140 people on board or leading people in combat. I tell these stories, not just for the drama, but because it, it shows how the principles I talk about in terms of leading apply even in the extreme circumstances where people's lives are on the line, but they equally apply in business where the stakes are still high, but generally it's not about people's lives on the line. Um, so, you know, I, I talk a lot about um, the role of the leader to nurture a sense of belonging in your team. And you do that by caring. Now, some people might say, well, this is all a little bit fluffy, isn't it? I talk about fear and love in my book. And again, people can recoil, particularly with the word love when attached to business. So the reason I use these stories from the, my military experience and uh, flying aircraft while I've had emergencies is to demonstrate that these aren't fluffy concepts at all. They really are not. It's, it's the key to what unlocks human performance and has us do certain things when everything is on the line. And uh, it applies just as much in, should we say, everyday life as it does in those situations. And I like you ref, um, correlating with not just business, but even relationships, let it be being a parent, Absolutely. friendships, um, community leaders. I mean, whatever it may be, because all these fundamentals, it seems like that you've learned and extracted over so many years of experience. It's all about the fundamentals people take for granted. Um, you know, if you, you really care, you actually present, you listen and you want to help others. That's what it's all about. When you're a parent, you'll do anything, sacrifice. You're, you're going to take the bullet. You're going to do whatever it is for your child, right? You're going to not even eat and drink or whatever it is because your child needs it, right? Like whatever it is. So in the business world, that's what has to happen as well. You're, most people don't come from a lot of money to be running a business. You probably have to sacrifice something to get there. And mm -hmm. in that sense, you probably have to sacrifice time or pay or whatever it may be, right? Away from your loved ones for a short term, hopefully. So all these things make sense the way you're explaining it. Well, just building on that, John, you know, 
everything we do in life, everything is driven by one of two things. Everything that's important to us is driven by one of two things. It's either driven by fear or it's driven by love. Now, I'll come back to the love thing because in business, people do get a bit twitchy when I mention that word. But let's deal with fear first. Fear raises its head when we sense that our life is on the line. Yeah. And that's good because it has a step back from the oncoming car that we didn't see until the last moment. You know, it saves our life. But fear, <clears throat> well, it raises its head in other circumstances too. Fear is triggered when we sense that our livelihood, our status, or our reputation is on the line. And when those three things are triggered, fear is much less helpful to us. Because in those circumstances, when our livelihood, status, or reputation is on the line, fear can show up as, well, first of all, we close down. We don't see, we're not thinking about other people. We're thinking about ourselves. We see the world not as a place of opportunity and possibility, but as a place of scarcity. We might show up angry or at the other extreme, timid. Neither of these, none of these things are helpful to us in those moments. And worst of all, our ego can come to the fore. And that's where it all becomes about me. Ego is Greek for I. But here's the thing, we always have a choice. And that choice is instead to source ourselves from love. And the way we do that is by seeing fear as a warning flag to prompt us to make that choice. Love in a business context looks like, um, well, a focus on others in our team and the people that we serve through our business rather than ourselves. It's about seeing the world as a place of opportunity and possibility. And importantly, instead of leading with ego, we lead with what I call humble confidence. And humble confidence, first of all, the confident bit, confidence is all about um, recognizing our strength, being absolutely resolute on where we're heading and ready to take the decisions when they need to be made. But then the humble piece comes in. And humble confidence, it means that we have the humility to take a step back and listen to others and to source the collective genius of our team to figure out the solutions, the challenges that we're facing. But we can only have humble confidence if we're sourcing ourselves from a place of love rather than a place of fear. So very briefly, we mentioned about parenting. And parenting, by the way, I think is one of the greatest leadership challenges that the vast majority of us face. And there's lots in the book about my parenting journey too. But Sadly, as we speak, we know that our thousands of predominantly mothers fleeing conflicts in their country. Here is an example of fear and love. Fear has been the trigger. They're, they're afraid for their life, their livelihood, their reputation. But they've used that fear to source courage. And that courage has had them act from a place of love. And what that looks like is to gather whatever they can and to move to a country where they feel safe. They don't know what they're stepping into. There's so much uncertainty, it's, be, it's difficult to begin to imagine. But they do it from a place of love, just as your mother did all those years ago. 
And here's the thing with fear and love. Courage can only be triggered by fear. But courage can only be sustained over the long term through love. And so it is with business as well. If we choose to act during times of uncertainty, where we sense that our livelihood, our status or reputation is online, if we choose to act from fear and be driven by ego, it isn't going to turn out well. But if we make that choice to be driven instead by love, to be that guardian of hope, to lead with humble confidence, then we will find the solutions to the challenges that we're facing. These are great words of wisdom, Peter. I mean, I, I love how you're giving analogies and it's how life is, right? Give people yeah. real stories, give people real examples and yeah. life is more simple that way um, by knowing real, real situations because people can understand what people are going through at that given time and moment. Like just going through my parents' Vietnam War, left the country, sacrificed everything, liquidated all their assets, not knowing language, coming to a new country, not knowing how to navigate anything, survival mode, like everything is going on. And until you're actually living that, you do not understand what those people are going through. You can only imagine but I can tell you it was challenging. It was different, but I don't take it for granted. I respect yeah. and really, you know, I look at my mom as the biggest hero in my life, right? And my parents really to sacrifice everything they had to do what was best for not them, but for the next generation. Absolutely. And that comes from a place of love, yes. not fear. And I think to your point as well, stories are, are great. And that's why my book is full of stories, because it's how we've shared knowledge over centuries. But each story, I, I've extracted the lessons from it, the things that we can act on in life and in, in business. And that's important. I, I think stories are great, but it's really important to um, distill them into actionable principles uh, and concepts that you can put into action um, and, and practice. And that's what Lean from the Jump Seed is about. So if you don't mind sharing with the listeners a little bit more about Leading from the Jump Seed, uh, about what's going on in your kind of next pivot in your journey in life right now and how it's going for you. Well, yeah, let, let's just dive into that jump seat thing because many people might not know what a jump seat is. So this is a <laughs> an aircraft, a flying um, example, and it, it dates back to when I was a senior officer in the Air Force uh, and pilot, and I was certifying, doing the last checks on this young captain called Callum. He'd been a first officer, a co-pilot for many years, and he'd just made the transition to become a captain, and that involved about six months of training, learning so much more detail about the aircraft and operations than he may have known previously. And the last part of the, the transition was for him to fly from London over to Washington, Dulles, and out on to San Francisco with, with an experienced guy, such as myself, acting as, as his co-pilot to give him that final check. And so it was with, with Callum, and I was watching him as we flew into San Francisco, which is a very busy airport. And he did a great job. We landed, taxied in, 
the 140 passengers got off. And it was with huge pride I was able to turn to him and say, Callum, great job. You're fully certified now as a captain. We're stopping here the night. In the morning, we've got another full load of passengers back to Washington, Dulles. You'll have a regular co-pilot, first officer with you. I'll be down the back with the other passengers. You know, well done. It was a great feeling because he'd worked hard for this. Anyway, in the morning, he came to me. He said, um, I, I just mind my own business as he was doing his, his planning before taking off. And he said, um, excuse me, sir. And the sir is important here, not for my ego, but the fact that I was very senior to him. Uh, he, he said, it's very busy here out of San Fran in the morning rush hour. He said, we don't come here often. So can you come and sit on the jump seat to act as an extra pair of eyes to make sure we taxi the right way and we stay clear of other aircraft? I said, yes, Captain, uh, I'd be delighted to. And it, it struck me how courageous that was because he wanted me to sit on the jump seat which is a seat, a third seat on the, air, on the flight deck of the aircraft, usually empty. But if you're a crew member, you can sit there and it's immediately behind the two pilots. You can touch their shoulders when you're sat there. And that's where you wanted them to sit because you have a great view out the front. I thought it was very courageous because it, it just got me off his back. You know, he'd been checked and assessed for months, but here he was connected to a higher purpose, which was the safety of the airplane. And he had the humble confidence to come to me and say, can you sit on the jump seat? So that's where I sat. I strapped in. We, uh, we got clearance to, to taxi. We made our way to the runway. And finally, it was our turn to get airborne. And we thundered down that runway. And it was all going well until we got up to about three or 400 feet off the ground just after takeoff when we had an emergency. And Callum was wrestling with the controls. And I knew that in, well, say the next two seconds, what I chose to do would fundamentally affect the outcome of the situation and whether we would all survive or not. And here's the thing. I did absolutely nothing. I sat there with my hands in my lap, perfectly relaxed. I just certified Callum to be able to handle anything on that aircraft. If I didn't think he could handle this situation we were facing now, I'd have had no business signing him up the day before. What I needed to do in that moment was not to lead. I needed to become a great follower. Callum needed to feel that I had his back. And this is what gave me the notion of leading from the jump seat, because you know what? We all hand over control in life. If we're the CEO of a company, we will retire. If we're a team leader, we'll probably move on to another team. And yes, even as a parent, our kids eventually grow up, leave home, and start to lead their own lives. So handing over control is inevitable. Leading from the jump seat is all about how can we lean into that intentionally? How can we prepare our people, lift them up, so when the time is right, they can take the lead? And jump seat leadership is not about retaining or growing our own power. It's about empowering others. So that was the, the story that prompted the, uh, the title of the book. Clearly, I'm talking to you now, so it all worked out okay, John, but you can read the detail of it in the first few chapters of the book. Um, so that's been my focus and continues to be my focus now. The book came out in October of last year. 
So I'm uh, delivering keynotes on it around the world, virtually and in person, thankfully, these days too, and also running workshops. And at the moment, I'm developing um, a, a course that other facilitators will be able to deliver uh, to be able to scale this way of leading uh, across big companies too, where there just isn't time for me to be able to do uh, uh, run workshops for everyone. So that's the focus right now. That sounds like so much fun. I mean, I, I look at how you put that into a story and make it realistic because as a business owner, I'll give you my example. First couple of years, do everything yourself. You hire a management team. You try to get them to delegate. You try to teach them, grow, let them make mistakes. Um, and then eventually you want to have a business that runs on its own. So that you can focus on doing what you love and, you know, have some freedom because you put so much time and effort into growing this business, right? So in order to scale, you need to not be hands-on. You need others, just like you're talking about, to amplify, to uh, scale, to, you know, reach other people and do majority of the work because one person can only do so much, but if you have a fleet of Absolutely. hundreds of people doing it on a larger scale, hitting as many businesses or consultants or organizations, mm -hmm. you're at a much better uh, part of growing your business, really. Of course. Uh, and, you know, to take the, the flying metaphor forward, um, you're not going to be able to go very far or go to many places. If you've only got one pilot, you've got to have lots of pilots who can, um, deliver in the way that you want them to deliver uh, to, to carry forward what's deeply important to you. So uh, everything in the book, it, it's a how-to guide. So it, it's, I, I describe through the stories and then give people the, the tools and techniques to be able to um, create an environment where people step up, take responsibility, where they begin to lead. And we can take more and more of a step back. And it, it's... It's about, well, when we do that, you see, John, it's not just about handing over when we take a step back. It turns out that when you put into practice everything that uh, I've written about, you create an extraordinary team and performance right here and right now. Um, it helps us to lead when we don't know the answer and for us to see that not as a weakness as a leader, but as a strength because uh, I go into this in some detail, leading when we don't know the answer does not come naturally to people. You know, the reason that we've been promoted or started our own business is because we do know the answer to the problem that we're trying to, to solve, you know, the big problem, the big thing that we're trying to bring to the world. Uh, and so it, it's actually quite hard to let go. But I can tell you that when you do let go and you can put your hand up to your people and say, look, I really don't know the answer to the situation we're facing, but let me tell you a reason why it's so important we've got to figure it out. And then you're in service, your people creating that environment where they can learn their way through to the solution. And you are no longer the constriction in the pipe because if progress depends on you knowing the answer as a senior person, you are the limiting factor. So in the book, there are lots of examples of real-time examples. I talk about the space program, um, about NASA, about Apollo 13. Uh, I give lots of business examples so as you can see how this plays out 
in the real world and then how to do it yourself. So yeah, it, it's, uh, I, I'm, I'm proud of the book because I know that it's helping people right now to be better leaders than I ever was. <laughs> Amazing. I, Peter, it sounds like you're having so much fun with this new journey of yours, your new business yourself, right? Because you're this is a business of your own that now you're starting and amplifying and speaking and creating a kind of workshop. And, um, you know, that's a well, journey on its own as well. It is. I mean, I established my business back in 2007. Um, but I, I've always had businesses. In fact, I, I've, I've started a new business to publish this book. I've started a publishing company. And that was a deliberate choice. I, I could have gone down the traditional publishing route, but I had so many people around me who I thought, you know what? By starting my own publishing company, I can draw them in. I can lift them up in terms of giving them the opportunity to do what they love, but take that step further to help them grow. And so the writing of the book has been an example of everything that I've written in the book. Uh, it, it's a, it, the whole journey of, of getting this book onto the shelves around the world has been an exercise in jump seat leadership and continues to be so. So uh, I, I'm, I'm desperately trying to practice everything that I've, I, I'm preaching and uh, I've written about. Amazing. So where do you see yourself in the next five, 10 years? In the next five, 10 years, I hope that the, the, the people that I work with you know, and I, I, I call it um, the, the people I work with, they each have their own businesses. And I'm absolutely dedicated to helping them grow their business. It just so happens what they do in that business really helps me too. And so I'm in service of them to, to grow their business and their, their, their livelihoods. And that kind of works out pretty well because they seem to be in service of me too. So in five to 10 years, what I uh, envisage, my vision is that all these people, and perhaps one or two more, all have their own thriving businesses. We're all working with one another when it makes sense to work with one another. And we're all helping to lift each other up. And the work that I've put down in this, this book, Lean from the Jump Seat, and the course that's coming out, and the companion guide, it will be out there in the world and many others will be using it to deliver these ideas of lean from the jump seat to their companies and uh, spreading that word. And that's what I look forward to in the next five, 10 years. Amazing. And is there a type of company or individual that you kind of see working with would help them more um, like an avatar or type of persona that is an ideal type of client of yours? Um, to distinguish it so that at least the listeners would know if this would be a good fit to reach out to you, Peter. So most of the companies that I work with tend to be larger companies because uh, I'm focused on trying to do this and deliver this message at scale. Um, but sometimes I, I, I speak or deliver work at conferences where there are lots of different smaller businesses. So some years ago, I, I delivered a uh, four and a half hour session for just under 3000 people over in Australia. It was just me on the stage. And they were from many, many different businesses, some um, very small businesses, but they're all helping one another 
during that four and a half hour session uh, to, to help put the ideas I shared into practice. So in the right circumstances, getting smaller businesses together, I think that that's a great way of um, uh, delivering this at, at scale through lots of small people, uh, small businesses. So uh, yeah, at the moment, my focus is on the larger organizations and I'm starting work very shortly with a large um, grocery store chain in, in North America, which is going to be exciting. Uh, working at every level of that organization. So uh, I'm looking forward to that very much. That's amazing. And I, I know you're going to bring so much value because um, for you, you've seen it in the government. And the government has so many layers, so many people, so much structure, uh, processes, systems that don't even talk to each other, right? So, and Oh, heavens, yeah. So there's a lot of challenges when it's a large organization. The whole point is how do you streamline to be efficient, productive? How do you get it to a point where everyone along the way understands because communication gets distorted the further away you are from the main source. Um, but as a small, smaller business, um, everyone is in a line. But as you get larger, it's yeah. very hard to have culturally the same values or alignment throughout every single individual. Although it, it is possible, you know. So uh, one company I've written extensively about in the book is ASOS, the online fashion retailer. And they've got something like 450,000 product lines. They add 5,000 products a week to their website. And those products are available in over 200 territories and countries. So absolutely huge scale. And it's uh, been run for the past few years by the CEO, Nick Baton, who is a jump seat leader. And going around their head office in London, it's phenomenal. Um, the, the average age of their 4,500 employees is just 27 years old. And when a new product is photographed in their studios in the morning, it is available on their website that afternoon in 200 territories in every size. Now, that takes what some might see as military precision. But actually, when you go around their headquarters, there are groups of people sitting on the floor having sort of creative conversations. And, but it works. The reason it works is because everything we've been talking about has been applied at scale in ASOS. And... Uh, People are empowered. People are invited to bring their special genius, whatever that happens to be, to the party in service of the people who they serve. And they're all focused on ensuring that everyone in the world has got the opportunity to be who they want to be. They happen to just do that through the medium of fashion. But that's what they believe. And everybody who works there believes that too. And I think that's vitally important as companies grow from being the small startup to becoming much larger. Uh, you've got to focus on what I refer to as the picture on the box. You know, it's, the, it's like the jigsaw puzzle. There's all the puzzle pieces on the table. That's the content, the stuff that you do, the things that you talk about. But the content has got no meaning whatsoever without context. Context is like the picture on the puzzle box. And as senior leaders, as founders, as entrepreneurs, we need to make that picture as vivid as possible. 
particularly as we start to grow. Because when that picture is very clear, very vivid, everyone else in your organization can figure out how to bring those puzzle pieces together. But if that picture on the box is not clear, then things start to go wayward and uh, it, it starts to break down. So that's the key. The larger we get, the more senior we are, the more we need to focus on context on that picture on the box. Uh, it's all about branding and what does that represent? I love that. Well, thanks a lot, Peter. I really loved our conversation. What's the best way uh, the listeners can reach out to you, check your information out? Um, this is your chance to shine on a plug. <laughs> well, you can find me uh, in the usual places on LinkedIn and Twitter and uh, Instagram, peter.docker. Uh, my website is a growing place for resources. Uh, that's leadingfromthejumpseat.com. And there are videos uh, and other resources on there. But then, of course, the book, Leading from the Jump Seat, is available um, pretty much everywhere in the world uh, in paperback, hardcover, ebook, and audiobook. So, uh, yeah, that, that's the best way, I, I guess. Grab a copy. It might even be in your library. So, uh, borrow a copy and hopefully you can start to learn and put into practice all of the ideas that I've shared and more. Amazing. Well, I really want to thank you. I'm ultra grateful to have you and honored because you shared so many great stories and you made me smile throughout this entire hour um, because I had a lot of fun and that's what it's all about, right? Having uh, moments like this where you will cherish and uh, remember. So I want to thank you for this great opportunity to have you on the show. And hopefully a lot of the listeners who had value, check his site out, buy his book, um, watch his videos and reach out to him if you have any questions. Thanks a lot, Peter. Thanks, John. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Bye-bye for now. Thank you for listening to our latest podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to The Business Sphere and share this episode. Tune in next week for more interviews from entrepreneurs. Oh, 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 oh,